0: Well, we will get started. Um are going to take this evening kind of slow because there, there's not a lot of information. It's just different type of information than I think a lot of us are accustomed to in a Bible study. Uh, what we're going to deal with tonight is uh, a little bit about the Old Testament, but a little more about what's called the intertestamental period. And uh, just this is my disclaimer before we start. Anything that is said during the intertestamental period or is quoted from some intertestamental writings, what we often call the Apocrypha, is not inspired or binding on your conscience. It may sound nice, but it's like when I say something nice. It's, uh, it's just nice. It's not the Word of God. The uh, other thing about it is just remember I during the intertestamental period I'm going to be telling you some opinions that people had back then. They might have thought the earth was a giant turtle with mud on its shell. It doesn't matter. That was just their opinion and it's not real or binding in any sense. So that's my disclaimer before we get in tonight. But the reason we're doing this is because When we get to the beginning next week, when John the Baptist and later Jesus begin to teach on the kingdom of God, they entered a world that already had an idea of what the kingdom of God should be. So a lot of their teachings are going to be, number one, correcting false notions of the kingdom of God, or number two, using existing ideas in a different way, and their uh, words and thoughts are binding on us, so... Just remember that when we talk about the intertestamental period tonight, I'm not binding your conscience or telling you that anything that we say about that is holy writ or true. It might be. It might not be. Yes, ma'am.
1: What does intertestamental
0: mean? Yeah, intertestamental. Good question. Um, Between the Old Testament writings, the last of which uh, the prophet Malachi Um, And the beginning of the New Testament writings, there's about 400 years of what we call silence. The 400 years of silence, that's the intertestamental period. And we'll briefly go over just a big, you know, from cruising altitude snapshot of things that happened. But we're not going to spend a lot of time um, with what happened. We're just dealing with it, with what they believed about the kingdom of God. Let me open us in prayer, and then we will get started. But I just wanted to hedge the table before... And say, you know, we're going to be talking about some books you probably haven't heard. Um, don't try to turn there. If, if they're in your Bible. Um,
2: <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, we'll see why. Um, well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you uh, that we get to come and study your word this semester. And uh, pray that this is a very useful and practical study, not just history, and not just theology, but how we as the early church, um, how we as the church can live in the kingdom of God today. Uh, we pray that you will give us uh, wisdom and clarity um, with this, not just uh, clarity of what we should believe, but of how we should act. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So. Let let me start off by by showing you at the beginning of your notes here. um, I've I've labeled this the kingdom of God from historical theology to local church practical application. The reason for that is uh, this class is not just going to be what the Bible says or what um, the church historically has thought throughout the years. I want us to come away from this, and you'll see a little bit of this in Unit 5, with what it matters to us today, like our church. Um, My hope is that we would all go out of here kind of with this idea of, okay, if this is what the kingdom of God is or how one lives in the kingdom of God, then how do we change our... I mean, I'm just throwing out words here. These aren't, you know, how do we change our bylaws? How do we change our Sunday morning services? How do we change our Sunday school classes? How do we change our children's ministry? How do we change the choir to fit the reality that we live in? And I'm not saying that any of these are out of compliance. I'm not code enforcement. But I just, I want us to go into this kind of looking for application when we get to the point Because you'll really see, and this this was something I did not expect, Uh, the New Testament writers, especially in the letters later on, um, they completely write about the kingdom from a very practical standpoint. And so you're sitting there going, you know, okay, Paul thinks if the kingdom of God is this, then you should live this way. So there's going to be some practical application. So unit one is the Old Testament An intertestamental basis for kingdom of God theology. Like I just explained, what did they believe when Jesus was born? Um, Why would Jesus teach about the kingdom of God in this way um, here based on what they believed in that time period? Unit 2 is the kingdom parables. Most of what we uh, learn about the kingdom of God is in parable form. So we're going to do a brief intro to what a parable is. We're going to talk about parables, how to interpret them, and then we're going to look at the kingdom parables. really two big groupings, and there's some overlap, but there are a lot of kingdom parables that explain the kingdom, which I think Jesus is dealing with misunderstandings in his audience. But then there are some that deal with how we're supposed to live in the kingdom, and those are very practical. One of them is um the lost coin the lost sheep and the prodigal son you know there there are these parables that show us how to act um, then unit three is going to be john's writings and the kingdom you know john wrote the gospel of john first second and third john and revelation and so the kingdom if you look at the gospel of john there's not much written it's there it's just written differently But then you look in the book of Revelation, and the kingdom's there. So it's interesting how he weaves these themes uh, differently than some of the other writers, and there's reasons for that. Unit 4 is going to be Paul and the apostolic kingdom teachings in the epistles. The epistles are the letters, and like I told you, those are very practical. Um, Went over a couple of those in a college group uh, this summer, And that's kind of the basis for why I wanted to do a broader study this fall on them. And then unit five, the kingdom and the local church. Knowing what we know at that point about the kingdom, and that's going to take a few weeks when we get there, um, what should we do and how should we live as citizens in that kingdom. And so um, you'll see that my first error of the semester is found in your next introduction. What do Matthew three one four seventeen and and there's supposed to be another verse they have in common? Um, yeah, good. I uh, obviously was too. Um, I meant to delete that and put it in a different lesson, but uh, I'll just say real quick: if you read um, Matthew three one, John the Baptist is talking about the kingdom of God, and Matthew four seventeen, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, and then there was just going to be another script. I could not pick. I was like, there are so many scriptures in the New Testament where Paul or someone mentions the kingdom. I was going to pick one by Paul in Romans 14, probably, or somewhere else and say, and you know, in Romans 14, uh, I can't remember the verse, have in common. And what I was going to say is three different people are speaking about the kingdom, and not just three different people, someone before Jesus, Jesus himself, and someone after Jesus. And it's just the idea that a lot of people in the New Testament talked about the kingdom, not just Jesus, a lot of people talked about it. Um, and so, you know, the first of many mistakes, all there just to say that the teachings about the kingdom of God are all throughout the New Testament. So let's get to the Old Testament. Now, remember, this actually, this actually does work. The stuff that we're about to quote from the Old Testament is Scripture, and, you know, you do have to listen to it. Um, but uh, the Old Testament taught on the reign of God, God as king, and if somebody would uh, do us a favor, open your Bible to Psalm chapter 2 and read Psalm chapter 2 for us. It may take just a few seconds, but uh, we like the Psalms. Which one? Psalm chapter
2: 2. The whole, thing? whole thing. Why do the nations rage and the people plot for their own thing? kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces, and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision, then he shall speak to them in his wrath, and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree, The Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for you your inheritance, and in the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a the rod of iron, you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him.
0: So you have Psalm 2 really interesting subject matter I have set my king on Zion my holy hill Uh, we call this a messianic psalm because it's obviously talking about some being or something that wasn't in existence when it was being written about. It's almost like David might be seeing a vision of a future state or a future event and this idea that the Gentile nations are out of sync with the will of God to be submitted to him. That's why there's that call at the end kiss uh, kiss the son lest you perish. This, This idea that that you need to pay homage to this being quickly now before his wrath is kindled. Because when he gets here, he's going to shatter the nations. And so, uh, Psalm 2 has this idea that, that in the Jewish mind, the Lord reigned over all the nations. He was the king. There weren't, you know, faithful people and the neutral people who could just do whatever they wanted You're either obedient to the Lord or disobedient to the Lord. Now, will somebody turn to Psalm 99? It's about 10 verses, I believe, and read Psalm 99.
1: The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and the righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In a pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You are a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for he is the Lord our Lord God
0: is holy so you've got this view of the Lord being the king but then establishing a king and these two uh, realities together um, promote and guard his worship at the Jewish temple And from both these psalms, the the idea that the peoples and the nations are supposed to recognize this because he establishes justice and equity is inherent in them. Uh, You can go all throughout the psalms and find this, but if you were in the classroom last semester, you also remember the prophets being very concerned with even non-God-fearing nations disobeying, what we call general revelation, the idea that there are certain moral truths that everyone should know not to disobey, and if they do, they do at their own peril because they bring about on them the displeasure of God, like Jonah being sent to the wicked Assyrian empire, not because they had a temple of Yahweh in the middle of their city, but because they were humans and should have known not to be full of such violence and atrocities. And so God... As the lawgiver and the king as the guardian of this equity and law and guarding the temple worship, uh, was central to their view of themselves and other nations. There weren't neutral nations. They had a very, um, I'll say, God-centric view of the universe. And if you were out of sync with the Lord, you were out of sync with reality. So the Old Testament view of what we would say the kingdom of God came from this idea that the Lord is king. And so they went, if you remember from our last class, into exile. And in exile, they no longer had the ability to make laws, to establish worship, or to be um, God's people in God's land. And so a lot of this changed during that time in practice, but maybe their theology uh, morphed a little bit. It it—we it, would say mutated. Um, As we talk about variants and mutations, they had variant theology um, after this point. Let's uh, talk about... So the, the Jewish idea of the Lord among other gods. You'll read about other gods in the Old Testament, and every single time, um, the Lord is either against them or defeats them or destroys them or laughs at them. There's never another theological entity out there that God views as his equal that should have a say in the matter. There's no middle ground, like I've said before, but... Anytime another worldview comes up against God, like the Philistine gods um, or the Babylonian gods, the Lord defeats them. The plagues against Egypt were uh, supernatural plagues that affected the way nature. But if you look at the Egyptian religion at the time, a lot of those plagues were showing that a certain Egyptian god couldn't do his job when the Hebrew god was around. He was above them and controlled nature better than they did. Um, if you remember, Baal is supposed to be the storm god, but God answers through a storm to to vaporize the sacrifice on Mount Carmel, showing that He's better at storms than the storm god. So you never have a neutral setting in the Old Testament. It's God and God alone, and all the other gods are false or subservient beings to Him. Um, that's the Old Testament teaching on God's reign. Any questions about this? Any comments?
3: Uh, this model, God and then the king
1: there to protect, mm-hmm. when did that, that,
2: could you put the word judges next to kings? I mean, the kings weren't always there until God said, okay, if you want kings, I'll give you kings.
0: Yeah, um, you could do that. Um I'm trying to remember how to spell it. Um, I think that's it.
1: Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure you did that right.
0: You're right. Yeah, <laughs> your right,
2: really off. It's not
0: so up. this this the the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. The 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 verb here uh, for salvation for a Savior, is used a lot in the Judges. The Lord sent a Savior. The Lord sent someone to save them. And kings were supposed to be saviors like that, people who saved the people of God, protected them. So you could use Judges. You could use, at times, prophets. But uh, the, the thing that's interesting about um, the idea of the king is the idea of the king was in the Old Testament um, before Saul became king. It's in the law. Moses talks about what a king will do and how a king is supposed to operate. It's just that the Jewish people jumped the gun and demanded a king like the other nations had, not like the Lord wanted. Uh, In many ways, it's like a parallel where, you know, Adam and Eve wanted knowledge of good and evil. They, They heard about that and it was desirable to them. I don't think God's will for them would have been complete ignorance. It would have been in his way and in his timing without a fall into sin. Um, God's uh, permissible versus decreed will. And uh, in many ways, I think Israel jumped the gun. They wanted a king, but not how God wanted them to have one. How they wanted uh, to be like that other nation over there. A king to go out, a big mighty warrior to fight their battles for them and save them. Because they got tired of these other people saving them. I think uh, if you read the Old Testament, that Israel oftentimes, um, I'm trying to think exactly how to say this, they want to put everything, um, let me say it this way, they want to take it home first and pay for it later. You know, It's like instead of layaway where they store it back for you and you pay for it slowly, they just they want the high interest credit card. Just let me have it now and I'll pay for it later. And when the interest rate crushes them, morally speaking, then they cry out to the Lord and say, you know, we got it too soon. And I think the king is like that. They got it too soon and it turned against him. And Saul, though he started well, was terrible. So remember um, the king in the, in the Old Testament is always spoken of in a very positive sense except when they turn against God. Um, so the king, uh, the idea of a king was not a sin. The way they asked for that king was a sin. Does that make sense, Jeff? Um, and if you remember what the Lord says whenever Samuel is pouting about it, he says, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me as their king. So... The idea that they wanted Saul was not under God, but instead of God. In their mind, they, they did not want the Lord to be their king, but some dude, some tall dude, you know. <laughs> All right, any more questions about the kingship and the reign of God in the Old Testament? I, I
3: would just add to it that once God appointed Saul, even when Saul was a terrible king, we see that because he was appointed and anointed by God, David treated him yeah. respectfully until God allowed his right. And
0: David would not take the throne from him because he was the Lord's anointed. And when a guy lied and said, yeah, I killed him, expecting a reward, David said, your blood be on your own head. You touched the Lord's anointed. Very good point. Um, let me say one more thing about this. The image of God out of the book of Genesis, as you know, we are created in the image of God. Um, part of that theology of the image of God is that uh, mankind, humanity, men and women are, would say, vice-regents, vice-kings, under-kings of the Lord. We establish His order. We establish um, His plan for the world. The, the, the language God uses to Adam to subdue creation and to arrange it and to multiply and be fruitful. Um, Adam was put as a king over the earth to show God's creativity and God's glory and God's rule over creation. Um, there's a lot of king imagery in the creation account that I think is lost when we read it. And uh, I think that also is a good thing to remember when you think of the Old Testament idea of God as king. Is that everything you do as a human on earth using your creativity, um, arranging uh, ideas, arranging sound frequencies into music, arranging the laws of physics into a functional bridge, um, things like that, that's, that's God's reign over this earth. Um, God is still ruling this earth. Um, when you rearrange uh, chemicals into pharmaceutical compounds to help, you know, cure a disease. That's all God. He gave you the ability to do that, and he's showing that he's the king by your creativity as a human. All right, now let's get to the intertestamental period. And what we're talking about is from about 400 B.C., 27 A.D. So, you know, give or take some. Of course, we could even start back a little further than that, but we're going whenever John the Baptist starts preaching because um, that is the beginning of something where God begins to move in his people again. You were supposed to listen to John the Baptist. His word was the word of God. And so, when you get to this point, John the Baptist starts preaching, the silence of God is over from Malachi to John the Baptist. Now, during this time, some weird things happened. Uh, The Jews went back and built a second temple. Remember, at the... uh, story of Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the second temple. Uh, Some Greeks under Alexander the Great um, bulldozed through the area. Alexander uh, according to tradition was warned not to touch that city, Jerusalem so he went around it. He destroyed the Persian Empire. After he died uh, his four successors fought each other and the people of God found themselves uh, between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies uh, based between Syria and Egypt. And a lot of warfare took place, terrible things. Antiochus Epiphanes, a cruel, uh, godless ruler, um, desecrated the temple. And the Jews had Greek domination. Uh, the Greek culture you know, swept the whole area, swept the world. The Greek language did. And these Greek client states dominated the people of Israel until... The Maccabean Revolt, and I'm not going to try to spell the whole thing because I'll mess up how many C's or B's there are. And there's that A-E thing going on. But the uh, Maccabee brothers um, were some Jewish uh, nationalist fighters who led a revolution against the Greek client states um, at the time and won Jewish independence. So there was a season of Jewish independence during this time. And uh, it's kind of a a mini golden age. Now, nobody knows what, uh, as far as I can tell, you know, inerrantly, what Jesus' opinion of the Maccabean brothers would have been. Would he have thought they were kind of like we think of George Washington, a freedom fighter? Um, Or would he have thought of them as people who were a little too violent and a little too fast to do God's work um, using the sharp edge of a sword? We don't know, but the Jews held them as heroes because they won a little bit of independence, but um, their dynasty became corrupt. And if you remember this from last semester, the Edomians, the Edomites, ended up um, taking over Israel. Herod was an Idumean. Remember, they converted to Judaism, and then they decided they'd take over um, Israel. And the Idumeans became Roman clients, where Rome guaranteed them independence and said, you can keep Herod, you can keep your kingdom, just keep it for Caesar and keep everything in order. And so during this uh, time, all except for right here, Israel was under foreign domination. So they did not have a king, except for that one little time, and they did not have freedom right? autonomy. Yes, ma'am.
1: I'm sorry, are you talking about the people from Edom,
0: E-D-O-M, and then they're... Yes, the but it got spelled somewhere around this time. It got spelled differently, but they are... Edomites, And during the last uh, class, we talked about how they got dispossessed from their land. They started living in Seir down in the wilderness. And uh, eventually, um, just through some weird turns of history, uh, converted to Judaism officially, but also maintained their own distinction and eventually took control of this area and became the ruling dynasty of it. And so, they are descendants of Esau? Uh, yes, of the Edomites. Um, and I'll ne- next, next week, I'll, I'll dig up that prophecy to remind you off the top of my head. I can't do it, but, um, it, it was I, in my last class. Um, I even said like, if you, if you look at this prophecy, uh, there is quite the fulfillment when you start looking at Herod, you know, and the idea that he's trying to kill the Messiah at one point. So it's, uh, intertestamental drama. Should make a movie about it. <laughs> Alright, so during this time, uh, the, the Jewish people start dabbling in this, uh, this is going to sound really weird. Um, it's like a genre of religious writing, and it was called apocalyptic. It's almost like, um, do you all know what dystopian movies are? All right, it's where it's like, let's think of a terrible future like where everyone's scrounging in the wilderness for food or like survived a zombie apocalypse and we're going to make movies about people, you know, running through abandoned villages trying to survive and people will sit there and eat popcorn and watch it, you know, it's... Um, so apocryphal... Uh, not apocryphal. Apocalyptic... Apocalyptic writings we're not oh it's the yeah. end of the world um, remember I said uh, in the last class I think I told you apocalypse means uncovering of something the Greek, <clears throat> Greek word of ap- apokalupto and it's, it's uncovering or revealing something so we call the book of Revelation Revelation um, what they would do is they'd say things look really bad now we don't have a king our temples corrupt But in the heavenly realm, things are happening. Um, You can't see it with your eyes unless we show you the visions. And so it's almost like a sneak peek of the heavenly realms. A lot of books of this, like the book of Enoch. um, Some of y'all may have heard a little bit about that. Um, And there were certain groups of Jewish religious people who would study these writings like they were Scripture and would use them uh, to make religious policy or even political policy based on these writings that were written during this. That we don't consider these writings Scripture, like I said. So Some of them. Some of them are so weird they're not even in that. Let me read one to you from the Psalms of Solomon. The Psalms of Solomon. See, O Lord, and raise up their king for them, a son of David, for the proper time that you see God to rule over Israel, your servant. Undergird him with the strength to shatter unrighteous rulers. Cleanse Jerusalem from the nations that trample it in destruction, to expel sinners from the inheritance in wisdom, in righteousness to rub out the arrogance of the sinner like a potter's vessel, using some of that Psalm 2 language, to crush all their support with an iron rod, to destroy lawless nations by the word of his mouth, for the Gentiles to flee from his face at his threat, and to reprove sinners by the word of their heart. He will gather a holy people whom he will lead in righteousness and he will judge tribes of the people sanctified by the Lord, its God. So, in some of this apocalyptic stuff, the Messiah was a war leader. He was a military figure. He would come down to get a human army but probably by divine empowerment, smash the nations. So they they would look forward to this day when they could have military, earthly power over all the nations. Now there was another type of apocalyptic belief. I mentioned the book of Enoch, and in the book of Enoch, there's a different view of the Messiah. He's not a military leader. He is a transcendent, heavenly figure. And in some of these apocalyptic writings, this heavenly figure wasn't going to create a military victory. It was bigger than this. He was going to usher in a truly spiritual age. It was almost like, why would I even worry with an army? I've got angels, and we're just going to come down and, and destroy the wicked with heavenly power and turn the world into a spiritual, physical paradise. And so, in their view, the Messiah was a heavenly judge, not a war leader, not a king, but like an angelic great being that would come down and usher in a new era.
3: Well, who were these writers
2: besides Enoch?
0: Um, we don't even know. So Enoch didn't write it, obviously, because Enoch seventh from Adam. They were writings that supposedly angels had delivered to these guys living in monasteries or in the desert. Um, the Qumran community was one. They were Essenes who lived out in the wilds. Um, and so they were receiving these revelations from angels or messengers, and, um, So we don't really know who wrote the book of Enoch, but it was supposedly preserved visions from Enoch given to an angel. Um, With the Psalms of Solomon, uh, people say, oh yeah, we found these old Psalms of Solomon. Nobody ever knew they existed before then. There were no records of them. They found them. They read like war songs. Um, We do not think these are scripture. Uh, We don't know where they're from. They could be useful just the same way a Christian book is useful by, you know, Dr. Charles Stanley. But they're only useful in as far as they stick to what we consider the canonical Word of God. And so don't get tripped up on what they say. I'm just showing you these are the views that the Jewish people have at this time.
3: So that's the reason they didn't accept Christ, because they were expecting... Exactly. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: But the heavenly judge sounds like the new heaven and the new earth.
0: Well... it does I' that's what I'm saying is some of their beliefs weren't wrong but it's how they when or how they were looking for it could have been wrong um, you know that's more in line with what we believe the heavenly judge than the war leader but even that if if you um let me give you an example. Do you remember when I just read from the Psalms of Solomon? Now, this is more about the war leader. That he was going to drive the Gentiles out of the temple. Well, what did, who did Jesus drive out of the temple? The money, money changers. Change. Jewish change. people. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, yeah, part of that was true. Not because of Scripture, but the way God turned it against him and said, Oh, you think I'm going to drive out the, the bad guys? Surprise, it's you. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I think some of this stuff was what Jesus was reacting to when he did things like, oh, you think I'm going to do this. Boom, I'm doing this. So yeah, this is, this is what Jewish people believed between the Testaments. Um, the Messiah was going to come back either as a war leader or as a heavenly judge and he was going to take care of those nations out there. Those bad guys. Not us. We're Jewish. We're good. We have the law of God. But those guys. Um so during this time the Sadducees
3: and the Pharisees
0: were making up all those rules. Right. So let me let me tell you a little bit about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees, uh, I'm going to use words in here. And listen, these words are just for reference point. You can't draw a hard, fast parallel. But the Sadducees were the theological liberals of the day. They may not have believed much of the Old Testament. They were very Greek in their culture and their appropriation. They were rich and... Um, there was even the Sadducees were the were the main party in Jerusalem. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the temple at this time. The temple was corrupt. The high priest, um, one of them had murdered another guy to become the high priest, and another family bought the high priesthood and had someone appoint him. Um, so you hear about Caiaphas and Ananias in the New Testament. They were they were seen as very corrupt. That's why so many Jewish religious leaders had moved out of the desert. They said the temple system is, is, is gone. God cannot forgive sins. And the only way God can forgive sins is if you rigorously study his law and apply it to your life and get free from this evil world. So the Sadducees, the Pharisees were different. And we, we would say that they were conservative uh, theologically, but they're also highly practical. They were like, listen, the law is about living in life. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna move in the villages and we're gonna tell all of you Rubes how to live according to the law because you're not smart enough. You remember the part where they're like, you know, they don't they don't even know the law. There's a curse on them. We know the law. They don't know the law. They're like, well the thing about people is they're too stupid to really understand God's law. So let me give you an example. Is um you know it will say don't break the Sabbath. Um you know rest. Well, people are too dumb for that. So let's make rules before the rules because you might get to the edge and then accidentally fall off because you're just not smart enough. So we're going to put up fences around the law so that you can't even get to the edge and sin because if you sin, God might remove us from our land again. So the Pharisees were conservative, but they were very practical. And that's why you get things like where they would tell people, listen, you might accidentally touch something unclean. So let's just have you wash your hands before you eat, just in case, so that you don't defile yourself. You might accidentally swallow a gnat, and then God would be displeased with you. So when you go to drink at a table, strain it through a cloth to make sure that the gnats are out. You might accidentally do some work on the Sabbath, so don't even think about working. Don't even think about what you're going to do tomorrow. Because you might accidentally go, well, I'll just take care of that right now. That was the Pharisee way. And then the Essenes, they lived out in the desert and they were spiritual and they were thinking, you know what? If you live a life devoted to mystical encounter with God, pursuing Him, studying His law, um, you will be part of the sons of light who at the day when this heavenly judge arrives, He will keep you safe from the judgment that will come upon the wicked nations and even the corrupt leaders of our temple. Are they the ones that moved out of the temple?
3: Are they the ones that you said moved out of the temple?
0: Yes, sir. Okay. Out into, uh, there's a community of them where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. um, Qumran, uh, all those caves in the desert. They had the Fortress of Masada where the Romans had to build that gigantic ramp up on top of that fortress. Um, they were a death cult. I mean, this is what's weird is that they weren't just peaceful religious, oh, was it austere religious scholars? Like that one guy, the uh, al-Baghdadi, remember the one in the paper called him an austere, austere religious scholar? Uh, maybe y'all didn't read that. They, they, uh, they were ready for war, too. Because they believed that when the Messiah came, even as the heavenly Judge, they might be part of the army. Um, so they they weren't just you know contemplative out there. Um, they were some of them were very uh, very set up for what we would call the boogaloo. Um, all right, so let's let's talk here the exile and its two components. Uh, Just remember that Israel lost two things during this time period. Number one, you know, during the they lost the temple during the exile. But even after the exile, when they rebuilt it, it became corrupt in their minds. So they, many Jewish people, did not consider the temple to be working how it should. So number one is the temple. Number two is the king. They lost their king. Except for the little Maccabean period, they did not have a king. And then we talk about the theories on the Messiah. He was, number one, a king or a warrior or a war leader, number two, a heavenly judge. So what I want you to keep in mind when we get into stuff next week, and this is kind of the summation of today, the kingdom of God was both a vindication, a vindication for the Jewish people that when this Messiah comes, you know what? He's going to prove to all these nations who have been trampling us that we really are God's people. So there's a vindication. Number two is retribution. Uh, the Jewish people would often get irate. That the Gentiles would treat them the way they did. And they wanted God to get even for them. Yeah. So their belief, whether it was a military leader or a heavenly judge, we're going to get even. And God's going to, look, God's going to pat us on the back and say, look, this is my people. Everyone notice them. Because you've got to remember, the last two blanks here, Gentile domination... Domination over Israel was supposed to be was a religious issue for the Jews it when, when the Gentiles rolled over them it made Psalm 2 and Psalm 99 and other verses like that stick out at them you know if, if we're being dominated by the Gentiles instead of dominating them we've done something really bad we haven't tried hard enough yet or God would bless us this way. Or, number two, Gentile autonomy was even a religious issue when the Jews considered their place in the world as God's people. If we're not ruling over those Romans, they are disobeying Psalm 2. It's not just maybe we're not trying hard enough to implement Psalm 2, but they're disobeying it. So, domination and autonomy. The idea that Gentile nations were not Subservient to God and them as God's people was a religious affront to the Jewish people. You know, it's like this God will, has told us one day that this will happen on the earth. And, and y'all remember from the prophets, He told the prophets when they would call Israel back after the exile and repentance. Um, God's going to call nations to come bring offerings up to the Lord on your holy mountain. The whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of him. And so what God was showing them is, I'm going to turn good out of this. I'm going to fulfill my plan for the world. And and the Jewish people took that and said, yeah, that's going to be great when they bring offerings right here where we are. And so instead of just seeing it as God's promise, they started seeing it as, you know, "Let's, let's help him. Get that. Um, And so in this mixture of Jewish nationalism and messianic hope, the idea of the kingdom of God (coughs) was recast by a man in the desert, and that is the lead-in for when we get to the parables. Any comments or questions or anything to sum this lesson up? Scott?
3: Uh, If I can go back to the apocryphal... Scriptures, or not scriptures, but the apocryphal writings. That, uh, and as Josh pointed out, you know, thinking it's helpful to think of them for that time as like books that we might find Christian writings. And if you read Christian books, you see some that are very scripturally sound. You see some that kind of go way off the deep end and get away from Scripture. Uh, where it's important for us to keep in mind as Christians, while a lot of those Can help you grow and deepen your faith, we can't read those exclusively with uh, and leaving out Scripture. I've seen sometimes Christians have started to kind of take all their time with God to just be reading these other books about Scripture rather than reading Scripture. And it's important (coughs) that we stay grounded more in Scripture even than those other. Books and so we can kind of discern the meat and spit out the bones as we work through them, which they had trouble doing.
0: Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Or Like I said, I know today is uh, a lot of information, but I wanted you all to have a background because next week... Um, as our previous says, there's going to be a guy in the desert telling Jewish people that they have to get baptized. And there's a reason, from what we just talked about, that they wouldn't like that. And So now it's kind of making sense where you're like, oh, that's why the Pharisees came out and said, what are you doing? And he's like, who warned you all to flee the wrath to come? You brood of vipers. That's my favorite scripture. That says something about... (laughs) But now you you get the idea of why this would be so weird. Why I have to get rebaptized? I've got Abraham as my father. Don't say to me you have Abraham as your father because God's able to take these stones and raise up children for Abraham. So you kind of see how the flavor of John the Baptist teaching makes a little bit more sense now when we look at the background of what, you know, we know what the kingdom is. We're Jewish.
1: Was there
0: baptisms before John? Uh, Yes, there were. And we'll get into that a little bit next week about what there were. Um, In fact, um, the baptisms, so we'll just leave it at this. Baptisms were, were seen almost as a way because I said they thought the temple was broken they're sitting here thinking how do we deal with our sin and how do we deal with our status before God without a working temple and so some of the groups baptism kind of became a way to cleanse themselves before God to be able to join that community to be there when the Messiah came so that you were The sons of the light, or the righteous, rather than just, you know, people corrupted by sin, and so um, it it had an effect like that. And there were different beliefs. Some people baptized over and over again. Of course, John was one and done. You know, Um, and we'll talk about that next week more. it's, it's a great it's a great thought because I think that is the like that was the key argument between the Pharisees and John. And if you get into what he's saying, and even what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3, there was was this idea in the mind of the Jewish people who heard Jesus and John the Baptist (coughs) that we're good enough based on this stuff. And they weren't. Not, Not for the kingdom of God. Any other questions?
3: Well,
0: they were dealing with a lot of baggage. Didn't they? Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you all very much. And uh, if you have made it through this lesson, this is the most cerebral and historical. The rest of them will be a little different, but hang in there.